Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 225. It's titled, How to Invest in Fixed Income. Last week, and I'm recording this in early October 2018, the 10-year Treasury bond hit its highest level since 2011. Its yield, the interest on that 10-year bond was 3.22%. To put that into perspective, in 1981, 10-year Treasury bonds yielded 15.3%. And that yield or that interest rate hit its all-time low in July 2016 of 1.46%. Now, in the almost five years I've been doing the podcast, I've had a number of episodes on bonds, on interest rates. One of the first ones I did was episode 22. It was titled, Will Interest Rates Ever Increase? I recorded it or released it on September 17th, 2014, the 10-year Treasury bond yield was 2.62%. Think about, think about that, the title. Will they go up? And they went down from 2.62% down to 1.46%. I don't have a way to predict what interest rates will do. This is a perfect example of investing on the leading edge of the present. All we have are the conditions, but to know whether rates are going to keep going up from here or not, it's hard to, do, hard to say. I think we can be very confident that where things stand now, that short-term interest rates, the policy rate, will continue to go up. What the Federal Reserve has set its target for short-term interest rates will continue to increase at least for the next six months to a year. But something could happen to change their mind. In episode 191, I went into great depth on what drives interest rates. How are they determined? It was titled, Has a Bond Bear Market Begun? I recorded that in December 2017. And only now are we seeing interest rates sort of break out of a trading pattern they've been in since April. What determines interest rates? In that episode, I talked about that prevailing interest rates are based on investors' expectations regarding inflation, the rise in prices. It's based on their expectations of future short-term interest rates. What's the pattern that the central banks are expected to raise short-term interest rates? And the third thing 
is what additional compensation do investors demand regarding whether short-term interest rates are raised more aggressively than expected or that inflation comes in higher than expected. And that additional compensation is called the term premium. So market forces, investor expectations determine what those interest rates are. As investors, we can earn yield by investing then in fixed income. When you invest in fixed income, you're essentially lending money. It might be providing capital to a bank. It could be buying a bond or a bond fund, a bond ETF, in which case that money is lent to companies who borrow it in the bond market or companies that borrow it via bank loans or they borrow from banks and then those bank loans are syndicated and sold into the marketplace and then we have the opportunity to invest in that. So what is it that determines the return if you invest in bonds or fixed income? Well, the first is the interest income, the yield that we get. The second driver is the change in prices of those bonds, how they go up or down in price as interest rates change. A third driver is the impact of defaults. If you lend money through the bond market and the company doesn't pay it back, that's a default that could result in a loss on that bond. And the fourth thing then is currency fluctuations, which we won't discuss a whole lot. But if you buy a bond in another country in a currency other than your home currency, how that currency fluctuates relative to your home currency, that will impact the return of those bonds. Let's take a close look at why bond prices fluctuate as interest rates change. Consider an investor that bought a newly issued 30-year U.S. Treasury bond, and it yields 3%. That means the bond pays $30 in interest annually for every $1,000 of bond face value. Face value is the price that the bond, that the interest, basically the price that the interest payments are based on. So $1,000 face value, 3% interest, that's $30 a year in interest. If interest rates rise to 4%, then an investor who buys a newly issued 30-year bond would receive $40 in interest. Seeing that an investor can now buy a new bond that pays $40 while the old bond pays only $30 in interest, the old bond's price must fall to a level that an investor would be economically indifferent investing in either of the two bonds. In other words, the, bond, the, the price of the old bond must fall to a level at which investors will make the same amount of money holding the old bond as they would owning the new bond. The degree to which a bond price changes as interest rates fluctuate depends on when the bond matures its yield and other features. And that price sensitivity to interest rates is known as duration. Duration is essentially the weighted average maturity of a bond or a bond portfolio's cash flow. A 30-year bond will receive cash payments in the form of interest for three decades, 
compared to just a few years for a five-year bond. So consequently, the duration or the weighted average maturity of the cash flows for a 30-year bond will be much higher than for a five-year bond. And so the bond with a higher or longer duration, its price will change more dramatically as interest rates change. And one way we could look at it is a 1% increase or decrease in interest rates will cause an individual bond or a bond fund or ETF to fall by roughly the amount of its duration. Now, this is sort of a back of the envelope. It's approximate. But say a fund has a six-year duration and interest rates go up by 1%, then the price of that bond fund or the bond will fall by 6%. Now you're getting the additional higher income. And at some point, that price decline gets offset by that higher interest income. And one of the rules we talk about extensively on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, our, our membership community, is that the best estimate of a bond's or bond fund's return is its current, what's known as its yield to maturity, its current yield. Or if it's a fund or ETF, it's its SEC yield, which is its yield. It's actually the yield to worst. So the yield assuming bonds that can be called earlier or essentially redeemed early are redeemed. But it's a good estimate of the annualized return for a bond or bond fund, that SEC yield. With SEC yield just applies to a bond fund or ETF. And so again, it's a yield after backing out the expenses, the expense ratio on the particular ETF or fund. And if you hold it for seven or 10 years, essentially your return will be that starting yield to maturity. So when we're looking and comparing bond funds and ETFs, we always want to look at, there's a trade-off. We want to look at what the yield is. And then we want to look at the price sensitivity is duration. Are we being compensated in terms of the yield for that price sensitivity? The longer the bond, in terms of its duration, the more volatile it will be. And is the payment, the interest income, the yield worth that volatility compared to holding cash in a money market account or a short-term bond fund? So that's one dynamic, looking at that interest rate risk comparing the yield relative to, to the duration. We also want to look at, again, the other thing that we're considering is the credit risk. What's the risk of default that a particular bond or selection of bonds won't pay back the principal and will stop paying interest? As investors, we need to be compensated for that. We need some additional yield above and beyond U.S. Treasury bonds. U.S. Treasury bonds essentially have no default risk. They will not be defaulted on as long as the government... I mean, they can be, but it's a very, very low risk because the Federal Reserve could buy the bonds, that the, the money can be created to buy the bonds to, to always pay the interest and redeem the principal. That doesn't mean that rates can't go up really high, but there's very 
essentially no risk of defaults with U.S. Treasury bonds. But for corporate bonds, there are. And we'll look at what the risks have been. But we want additional compensation because of that default risk. If they're investment grade, so higher credit quality, which means they have more cash flow that is being generated to cover interest payments. The additional yield we demand, it's called a spread. So it's an incremental yield above treasury bond yields. So for example, investment grade bonds, so these higher credit quality bonds, bonds right now that incremental yield is 1%. The average incremental yield and this is the yield above 10-year treasury bond. So it's 1%. The average since 1973 is 1.1%. So that's, we're at average. For speculative-grade bonds, so high-yield bonds where there's a higher risk of default, the incremental yield right now relative to 10-year treasuries is 3.2%. And the average, going back to 1983, the average spread or incremental yield is 4.9%. So we're very much below average. In 2016, we were above average. In early 2016, we got upwards of 6% incremental yield for investing in non-investment grade bonds. Now we only get 3.2%. Bank loans are the same way. It's, it's, I find it more difficult to get the, the spread data for bank loans, but right now bank loans, this is data from Eaton Vance, and I'll link to it in the show notes, as all the links will be there at moneyfortherestofus.com or as a member of my free insider's guide, just sign up for the weekly email you get. It's free. I'll send you those links as, as well as other valuable content, additional material that didn't make it into the podcast. I just send that just to that email list. So that's at moneyfortherestofus.com. So eat in advance. And I talked about bank loans in episode 206, some of the risk there. That incremental yield right now for bank loans is 3.7%. The sort of the long-term median is closer to, if I understand this data correctly, about 5%. So it's similar to high yield bonds. You're getting less incremental yield relative to effectively risk-free treasury bonds. Now, these default rates, what have they been? This is data from Moody's. Again, I'll, I'll send you the link. AAA, that's the highest credit rated, rated bonds. AAA bonds. The average default rate, this is, I believe, going back from early 1980s to 2017. Default rate's been zero. So no defaults for AAA bonds. And when we're talking about default, we're talking about the average one-year default rate. So what percent of the AAA bonds defaulted in a given year going back to the early 1980s? Zero percent. Zero percent of AA plus bonds. If we go down to AA bonds, it's been 0.01 percent. Single A, 0.05 percent. And I'm going down in credit quality. Triple B bonds, 0.22 percent. So... That's why they're called investment grade. The, the bond default in any given year is very low. Non-investment grade or speculative grade bonds, it, it definitely varies. So double B bonds, 0.75% default each year. 
Single B, 6.3%. B minus, so not quite B, 9.2% default every year. And triple C, 24% of bonds, triple C bonds, default every year. Now, if a company's getting in trouble, their, their, their bonds start to get downgraded. So eventually, when the risk of default becomes very high, then they get their triple C. So 24% default in every year. Across all non-investment grade bonds, so high-yield bonds, the average default rate's around 4% historically. Now, if you're yielding 6%, so right now high-yield bonds yield 6.2%, if 4% of the bonds defaulted every year and you got none of that money back, then that would reduce your return by 4% per year, so down to about a 2.2% return, which is less than what you'd get with treasury bonds. But with bonds, you don't lose all your money. There's some level of recovery, and this is data from... S&P, they show that the average bond recovery when it defaults is around 30 to 40%. So you, you get about 30 to 40% of the money back that defaulted. With bank loans, it's a little higher. It's about 60, 64%. But we talked about this in episode 206, that a lot of the newer issuance of bank loans are even more speculative. And so the recovery rates could be lower than what they have been historically. But that that's sort of that other aspect. That's a credit risk. For investment grade, there's a very low risk of default. For non-investment grade, that default risk starts to, to take a toll. So if you assume 4% default, and your loss on that 60% because because there's a 40% recovery, then we should reduce our expected return by about 2.4% annualized to take in defaults. And so if yields are 6, 6%, then the expected return after defaults is closer to 3.6%. So that, that's one way to look at that. Before we continue, let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. 
my first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So we have interest rate risk, where we're comparing the yield to the duration. We have the credit risk, where we're looking at what's the credit quality of the fund or bond. Is it investment grade or speculative non-investment grade, sometimes called high-yield bonds. And then we have to look at the implementation. And this, on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, with rates rising, reaching their level they haven't been since 2011, I have no insight to whether rates, longer-term rates, will continue to go up. It depends on expectations for inflation, Depends on that term premium, the additional compensation investors expect. It depends on what investors believe the Federal Reserve will do in the future, going out one year, two years, three years in terms of raising rates, their policy rate, or lowering it. We don't know, but we have to implement it. So I I made a change. I sold one of my bond funds, and I, I sold a fund, a double-line fund in the model portfolios. I didn't sell it. I I changed the model portfolios. And it raised a host of questions on, in the member forums. Like, why'd you buy this fund? Why, Why not this fund? Why don't we just hold cash? And it gets to the implementation. That's what we're going to talk about now. How do you decide whether you want to hold bonds at all? Do you hold, why do you hold bonds? Why don't I hold bonds? Because I like getting a portion of my portfolio return through interests, through income, it, it reduces the volatility. I like bonds because it's based on math. It's less based on the, the fear and greed of investors, or it, it's less based on corporate earnings to some extent. But it's, it's, I can more easily determine what my expected return will be with bonds than I can for stocks. Bonds give me optionality to be able to take advantage of other asset classes when they sell off and they get cheap. So I like the optionality of bonds and I like just the stability of bonds. Now there's trade-offs because if because if inflation comes in high or things like that, then you don't you don't get as high a return. And so as investors, we have to decide do we just want to own one bond fund and just hold it for ever 
Or do we want to make changes as the yield, the interest you get for duration changes? Because as the Federal Reserve raises its short-term policy rate, that means our yield is higher on cash. And if longer-term bonds aren't going up as high in terms of their yields, then the, the yield curve is, is, is flattening, which means we can lock in a higher yield without taking that, that duration risk. Or, and then we're also looking at credit risk. How much compensation am I getting to protect against defaults? So we have all these things to weigh against. But first, we have to decide whether we want to be willing to even make changes or not. I've always made changes as, as an investor, individually and professionally. I'm comfortable doing that. Doesn't mean it's I'm always right, but it's... Ha- so that's sort of your first choice. Then you have to decide whether you want to own funds, ETFs, or individual bonds. I've had some discussion in the member forums regarding individual bonds, and, and a particular member pointed out that he just finds it easier. He finds bond funds just more difficult because of the fact that a bond fund is always selling bonds or buying bonds. And so if you hold an individual bond, if you go out to your broker, it'll show you the yield to maturity or the yield to call. You can buy it. And if you hold to maturity, that's your return. It's that simple, assuming the bond doesn't default. Whereas with a bond fund, you have to worry about what's the duration and, and the interest rate fluctuation. So, but the trade-off is it takes time to research and buy individual bonds. And some individuals don't have enough money. Sometimes they sell, you have to put $25,000 out to buy an individual bond. No, I've done both, but I primarily invest through bond funds. And, but others like that. So that's the other choice. And then you have to decide whether you want to just own the bond market passively. So for example, the Vanguard total return or the Vanguard total bond market fund, that's an option. Or do you invest with an active management strategy, which is how I primarily do it because I like Because I'm always looking at the math characteristic. What is the yield versus duration versus the credit risk? And I find typically, sometimes active, I can do do better at that. Some ETFs, they look passive, but they kind of have an active component. There's somebody structuring it because there isn't necessarily an index that they can replicate on. The other thing about bond index is... It's capitalization weighted. So the bigger the bond issuance, the bigger its position in the index, which is sort of counterintuitive. That means the most indebted borrower has a bigger position in the index. And so if you have an active fund, they can sometimes say, well, I don't want to hold that company, even though it's a big component of the index. So when we talk about implementation, I I sold a bond fund and I made the change. And then I kind of have to decide, we have to decide where are we going to invest? So look at the trade-offs right now. We can invest in a way, you know, on one end of the spectrum, we can have all interest rate risk and no credit risk. Could own the long-term government bond or the, let's say the iShares 
20-year, 20-plus-year Treasury bond ETF. So it's yielding 3.15% has a duration of 17.4 years. So all interest rate risk and no credit risk. In fact, I had a, a member write me and he says, well, so many people are, are moving and buying shorter term bonds. And, and they are. I mean, the, the fund that I, I bought or will be buying is the double line low duration bond fund. Its SEC yield is 3.5%. So it's getting more yield, 0.3% or 30 basis points more yield than a long term bond ETF. And the Vanguard total bond market fund, which is the entire bond market, is yielding 3.17%. So basically the same as these long duration bonds. And so the question is, why would you own a long duration bond? Well, we talked about that back in episode 201, is your portfolio unbalanced? And the reason why investors like to own long-term bonds is because if rates fall, then you get the price appreciation. And so, and rates fall dramatically, typically when there's a flight to quality and stocks are selling off. So you get that, that counterweight, that beneficial diversification. I, I don't invest that way. I want to look at the yield. What am I getting paid for for that risk? And I don't find the compensation high enough. At some point, if the 30-year Treasury bond was yielding 5% and inflation, for whatever, let's say the term premium got really high, so investors wanted way more to protect against unexpected inflation, maybe then I would buy Treasury bonds, long-term Treasury bonds, but not currently. So that's one end of, end of this spectrum, buying no all interest rate risk, no credit risk. The other is to take all credit risk and no interest rate risk, and that's bank loans. These are speculative grade. They're variable rate bonds, so their yields go up as short-term rates go up. So you don't have any interest rate risk, but it's all credit risk. So that's the other end of the spectrum. And then there's all the things in between. Let me just tick off some of the, the things we can look at. Probably, and I, and I talked about this a little bit back in episode 220, 220, where to invest cash savings. But at the short end, we have the iShares floating rate treasury fund. So it's variable rate. So there's no interest rate, no, no interest rate risk and no credit risk. It's yield right now. SEC yield is 1.9%. You can do money market funds. The Vanguard Prime Money Market Fund, its yield is 2.15%. No interest rate there. Some credit risk because it's buying commercial paper, which is short-term debt issued by companies. There's the iShares Ultra Short-Term Bond Fund. ICSH. We talked about that in episode 220. That's yielding 2.57%. Its duration is 0.42, so a little bit of interest rate risk, not much, but there's some credit risk, but it's all investment grade. And when I've gone through the, the historical default rates of investment grade credits, and so 
the default rate is low. Now, that does not mean that if the risk of default increases, that that spread can't widen, which means it's, it's effectively rates going up because investors are more worried about default. So it doesn't actually have to be the default. If the spread widens, then the value of the bonds go down. Now, that's something to consider with buying some of these ultra-short-term bond funds. On the other hand, they're, they're short-term, and so that the credit spread won't necessarily widen that dramatically as long as the economy holds, which is the other thing we want to consider, the investment conditions. Is the economy expanding? Is data suggesting some of the, the early warning signs there that the economy is the risk of the recession is increasing? And that's why if you're going to make changes to, to bonds over time, you kind of have to be aware of investment conditions. There's the double line low duration bond fund. This was a fund that I we added to the model portfolios. DBLXX. Its SEC yield is three and a half percent. So as more than, as I mentioned, you can get for long-term bonds, but the duration is only 1.2 years. But there's credit risk. It's triple B. So it's still investment grade, but triple B. And so you're taking more credit risk. There's the double line total return bond fund, which has a yield even more, 3.7%. Its duration is longer, 4.1 years. It's Morningstar says it's double B, but I don't th- I don't know if that's correct or not. That this fund owns a lot of mortgages or bonds backed by mortgages. And double line reports only 12% is below investment grade. But either way, there's some credit risk there. There's more duration risk. And these are the trade-offs that we have to make. I don't I don't have a good answer here. I look at, we talked about last week Howard Marks's book and looking at where we are in the cycle, I see us nine years into an economic recovery that credit spreads are narrow and there isn't a high risk of a recession right now. I see that the Federal Reserve is raising its short-term policy rate and has said they continue to do that. We're at the lowest unemployment rate in the U.S., since 1969 at 3.7%, I think inflation pressures are increasing. And so my bond, my fixed income positioning, is I'm short. I own short-term bond ETFs, and I own, as I mentioned, the the double-line low-duration funds. So I own low-duration bond funds, and I own short-term, ultra-short-term bond funds while monitoring credit risk. If it appears that the economy is starting to slow, I might make that change. So I'm willing to make changes, but that that's sort of, you kind of have to set the parameters ahead of time. Are you willing to make changes or are you just going to be buy and hold when it comes to fixed income? And what is the role of fixed, fixed income? If your role is purely as the diversifier, then you own long-term bonds and you ex- ignore the fact that the yield is lower than what you can get versus short-term bonds. I'm also not investing in, or I have very little exposure to high-yield or non- or speculative-grade bonds right now because, again, the compensation is much below average. I, I have some bank loan exposure, but I implement it with an actively managed fund. 
the Virtus Sykes floating rate bond fund. So they're doing the credit research. And so, but that that's how I'm positioned currently. So there isn't a right answer. There's always trade-offs. And, and it can be frustrating because we want the right answer. What do I do now? There's never a right answer. It's always trade-offs. Credit risk, interest rate risk, perhaps currency risk if you want to do not that aspect of it. And deciding how you want to implement it. Active, passive, individual bonds, bond funds. And and that's why on our community, Money for the Rest of Plus, we have these type of discussions. Get feedback. In fact, double line, low duration bond fund. I was a member, pointed out how much higher its SEC yield was. I hadn't looked at that in a while. So it's a community. You can learn more about that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Just about a thousand members on there. So that is episode 225. Show notes are at moneyfortherestofus.com. That's where you sign up for my free insider's guide. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. Just general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.